Tonight's teaching comes from John chapter 8, verses 12 through 20. Here we read the following. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Well, the Pharisees challenged him. Here you are appearing as your own witness, and your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you have no idea where I came from or where I am going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are true because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am the one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Then they asked him, where is your Father? You do not know me or my Father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. This is God's word. This is actually the third weekend in a row now that we've looked at the Feast of Tabernacles. But that's been the backdrop. And several weeks ago, we were, we were still in our generosity series and we saw that uh, in Deuteronomy, there was a recap of the Feast of Tabernacles. And last week, we listened to the story of the woman who was caught in adultery, also from John chapter 8. And uh, that was against the backdrop of the Feast of Tabernacles. And here we are again here tonight, the text right after that, and it's still the Feast of Tabernacles. And it's a good way for us to kind of put these things together. Remember what the Feast of Tabernacles is. It is a a festival, uh, which is one of the three major festivals that God commanded his people to celebrate over the course of a year. Uh, it was the last of the three. It occurred during uh, September or October is what it would be in our timeline. And it was a feast where the Jews got together and they celebrated charity to one another and community with one another and celebrated and lived almost like family. They lived in these open or partially open tents and booths. And uh, this was for a week lawn type of thing. And it was a reminder. It was a reminder of about the time that they were back in the wilderness And back in the wilderness, uh, they said, look, it was a very temporary kind of thing and it was very rough living and God provided for us miraculously and daily. And the main takeaway then, after a week long of celebrating that ceremony was, our time here on earth is temporary. Right now we are in the wilderness. We are not to the promised land yet. We're in the wilderness, which means we shouldn't sink our roots down too deep. And what we should do in the living and dumber years and the time that we have here is what? We should be seeking the glory of the Lord. We should be blessing the community of believers. And we should be trusting that the Lord is going to provide for us daily and abundantly. One of the unique aspects of the Feast of Tabernacles then is the lights. A lot of people today when they think about like Jewish ceremonies and lights, the first thing they think of is Hanukkah as a festival of lights. Technically, way before that, the festival of lights amongst the Jewish people was the Feast of Tabernacles. And the whole city had torches that were lit up around it. And uh, there, was, there was lights everywhere. And, and maybe the most prominent feature of this was this massive, massive candelabra that existed in the temple courtyard in the court of the women uh, near the temple treasury. And, well, why, why a big candelabra during the Feast of Tabernacles? Because they're reminding themselves again about what happened back in the wilderness. And back in the wilderness, God didn't just provide food miraculous. He didn't just provide shelter. He also provided 
light. Now, remember when the children of Israel came out of Egypt from slavery, they went to the, you know, through the Red Sea to the desert. And how do they know where to go moving forward? They didn't just randomly carve out their own path or anything like that. But God was not just with them. He went before them. And he went before them, if some of you remember this, during the course of the daytime, he went forth in the image of a cloud. And that's interesting because when you're going out into the desert, you know, like what is the one thing, that, the number one thing that can hurt you out in the desert? Not having water, but also like the sun. And the idea that God would come before them in the form of a cloud and really even offer some protection and shade in the process is fascinating. But at nighttime, you don't need shade so much. What you really need at nighttime, especially in the desert, especially when there's no lights anywhere, uh, is you need actually some light. Because otherwise you don't know what's going on around you. You don't know who's coming after you. You don't know what might threaten you or where to go. You need some guidance. And therefore what God is doing, you know, in the, in the Feast of Tabernacles, they're lighting these lights every night for seven days. And they're saying, you know what? We needed God back then. You know, the cloud and uh, the pillar of fire. And they, the cloud and the fire, they settled on Mount Sinai and God was there. And they settled on the tabernacle uh, and, and God was there. And when they, that's how they knew when to go out is when the, the, the pillar of cloud and fire would move. And then when at the, the, the uh, dedication of the temple in 1 Kings 8, we're told that the glory of the Lord... The, the Shekinah glory of God, it's called the Kavod Adonai, it filled the temple at that time. And it was God's like tangible presence. God was with them. The glory of the Lord was with them, manifest in this visible kind of way, in this holy way. And yet you get to the Fe Feast of Tabernacles and what you understand here is that, yeah, the Israelites were led by the light of God way back when, but we're still led by the light of God even here today. That's still how we know what is true. That's still how we know where to go. And it's against this backdrop and against this massive, you know, candelabra that Jesus gets up and he says what? I am the light of the world. Okay? This is the second of Jesus' major I am statements in John's gospel. If you don't know, John's gospel is largely constructed on these I am statements. And that might not mean a whole lot to 21st century English speakers, but the first century Jewish people that resonated. They knew exactly what I am meant because when God came to Moses in the burning bush before the Exodus, remember he's there in light and fire, and he talks to Moses and Moses says, who are you and who am I supposed to tell the Israelites sent me? He says, you tell them I am who I am. I am has sent you. It's the proper name for God, I am. In the Hebrew, it's uh, generally just produced some kind of verb, uh, version of Yahweh. And that's the proper name of God in the Old Testament. And so when Jesus is talking about these I am statements in John's gospel, what he's saying, when he calls himself I am, he's saying, I'm the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecy. Not to mention the fact, I am one with the God who called Moses. I am one with the God who led you people throughout the wilderness. And I am the only one that can make sense of your life moving forward. So this is by the way, this is again why we sometimes work our way directly through a gospel because unless you're reading John's gospel contiguously, you don't see this. Three chapters in a row, Jesus is making this exact same point. In chapter 6, he's using wilderness imagery. In chapter 6, he said, I'm the bread of life, which very clearly is a comparison to the manna that God gave in the wilderness. In chapter 7, John chapter 7, he says, Look, come to me, all you who are thirsty, and within you I will well up streams of living water. Very clearly, that is a comparison to the rock in the wilderness from which water flowed out when the Israelites were thirsty. 
And in John chapter 8, the third chapter in a row, he says, I am the light of the world, which very clearly is comparison to what? The pillar of light that God appeared in back in the wilderness. Jesus very clearly in his Feast of Tabernacles is using wilderness imagery to say, I am the physical manifestation of that God here on earth right now. Now, that's an impressive claim. Say, I'm not just God in general, I'm that God that you have been worshiping all this time. And when you make great claims, it requires a great deal of testimony. In other words, it requires a great deal of witnessing attached to it. And that's why the rest of the dialogue between Jesus and the Jewish leaders in this text is essentially saying, how do we know that your witness is valid? Is your witness valid? And, you know, there's a little bit of irony packed into that. Uh, So remember, the story that we looked at last week comes right before this text. And in that text, it's the woman who was caught in adultery. And do you remember what the Jewish leaders were guilty of in that text? They had sent false witnesses. So for them, in the very next story here, in the very next account, for them to demand that Jesus provide authentic, good, legitimate witnesses, it's not only ironic, it's hypocritical. But furthermore, it's also interesting because who is going to witness to the fact, which human is going to witness to the fact that Jesus is true God from all eternity? Like theoretically, only two people would be able to do that, two persons. God the Holy Spirit and God the Father could testify that Jesus is co-eternal as God. And so in one sense, it's impossible for another human to testify to that. In another sense, the Father and the Spirit do testify that Jesus is God. That was the whole purpose of John the Baptist's ministry. That's the whole purpose of Jesus being the fulfillment of all the prophecies. That's the whole purpose of all of Jesus' miraculous signs. That is the Father and the Spirit testifying that this Jesus character really is truly God with us. And therefore, what's the important takeaway in all of this is the Jewish leaders don't believe. Why? They say it's because of what? They say it's, well, it's a lack of evidence. It's a lack of testimony. No, it's not a lack of evidence. It's not a lack of testimony. The testimony is right there in front of them. They disbelieve because it's inconvenient to believe. It's really inconvenient, and they have this inherent pride and blindness. And that blindness, so blindness and sight or darkness and light, is the the metaphor that we really have to drill down into here. Because this, when Jesus makes these I am statements, Oh my goodness, these things are so incredibly deep. We're, I mean, we could do the whole time just on pulling apart what this metaphor means. We're going to give you three things, three ways, both a positive and a negative, that Jesus functions as the light of the world. Um, and I'm hoping that I can convey some of this. What is packed into that metaphor? Number one, if Jesus is the light of the world, that means he's the source of all life. Why? Well, um, astronomers have this thing called the uh, circumstellar habitable zone, the CHZ. Sometimes it's just referred to as the Goldilocks zone. Basically what it is is it's the distance from any given star that life becomes habitable because it's the right conditions for life. So it, like for instance, liquid water. Uh, Scientists are constantly thinking about and looking for liquid water as a necessary way to make human life, you know, possible. And we're searching all over the universe for that. It really isn't the water that's important, though, because the elements required for water are the most abundant elements in the entire universe, right? Uh, The oxygen and the the hydrogen. That's all over. We don't need, what we need is the right conditions for those elements, What we need is the right energy level, uh, the atmospheric pressure and the temperature to make that possible. What we need is the right amount of 
light. So like too much light will absolutely burn you up if you're too close to it. And yet if you're too far away from it, you'll absolutely freeze. So like light is the basic source of all life. Light is what you need, for instance, uh, photosynthesis. This is like, you know, seventh, eighth, whatever it is, grade math. Or not math, don't even know. So seventh, eighth grade science. Clearly it's been a while. Uh, it's basic science, though. What is photosynthesis? I'm not clearly equipped to say that, but uh, it has something to do. It has something to do with plants use light as food. And then when plants use light as food, humans use plants as food, and animals use plants as food, and the earth uses plants as food. Do you know where, like, fossil fuels come from? It's the decomposition of organic life. And therefore, everything that lives, it comes back to what? Light. Light is the number one thing necessary for life before anything else. It's, it's absolutely necessary as a source of life, unless, of course, it kills you. You know, because light can do that, too. And lots of people have debated exactly, you know, like, environmental factors and what exactly conditions the universe as far as, or the Earth as far as global warming and the ozone layer and, and the atmosphere. And what nobody debates, what nobody debates, is if the atmosphere is significantly damaged, we're all going to die, right? Because humans are going to get cancer at this extraordinary rate, and plants are going to die of radiation like that, and it does all sorts of things to the oceans and, and, and the other animal life and stuff like that. So the basic point is what? Light is absolutely necessary for life, but without any kind of filtering, light also has the power to end you. What does it mean when Jesus says he is the light of life? That is a loaded metaphor. Um, what does it mean when Jesus says he's the light of life in terms of truth? What does truth have to do with life? This is almost so self-evident that you've perhaps never even really thought about it before because you don't understand the necessity of light for truth until you find yourself in absolute darkness. And so it's only in the moments when, you know, maybe you've been like camping and you needed to get somewhere, you needed to get to a bathroom or whatever, and you'd like, you, have, you can't see like your hand is far in front of you because it's so dark out. Or maybe it's when, you know, you're looking for something, an old, old photo album in an a attic or a basement. And especially if it's one that you're kind of unfamiliar with, the first thing that you look for, if you're looking for the photo album in the basement, you don't look for the photo album. When you go into that room, the first thing that you look for is the light switch. Because if there's no light, you're never going to make sense of the room around you. You're not gonna, never going to make sense of the reality that exists around you. You have to have light in order to find the truth of what you're seeking. For that matter, if you don't have light, it's totally dangerous. Um, I live on a street that dead ends pretty quickly. It has no street lights on it. And therefore, when I am driving somewhere at night and I'm about to pull out onto the adjacent street, what I've learned, because I've almost hit a couple people, is I have to go really slow because I 100% cannot see them crossing the sidewalk and crossing that, my street unless, like, it's my headlight light that's on them. So I got to go super slow. It's super dangerous if you don't have light to reveal the truth that exists around you. And so you only have a couple of different options. Either you can discover the reality of the world about, around you by being completely disoriented, constantly running into things, and maybe hurting yourself or hurting other people, or you can increase the light source that exists in your life, and what it does then is the light actually bounces off of things and goes into your retina, and something really interesting happens. You can experience the reality of the world around you before you physically touch it. That's incredibly helpful. So what does that mean? Um, 
light is necessary for truth um, unless it potentially, like, blinds you. Because, like, if you have a certain amount of truth or if you have a certain amount of light, uh, your body can't entirely handle it. Uh, it's one of those things, a couple years ago, we had, uh, like, the biggest solar eclipse in, I forget how long, 50, 75 years or whatever. If you remember, you probably did this too. You went outside and people were watching the solar eclipse. And how were they watching the solar eclipse? They didn't just stand and look up at the eclipse. They either had some kind of weird filtering thing that they had designed at home or they had like a smartphone and a lot of people were looking down at their smartphones with the, the video camera going up there. Why? Because if you look directly at the light, it will burn your eyes out. And it's incredibly, extraordinarily dangerous. Uh, you can sense this even when, when you get a bunch of pictures taken. Like so if it's, you're standing up in a wedding and a photographer with a high-powered, uh, you know, lights like, like flash, and if you get like 8 to 10 to 12 of those in a row, all of a sudden you can't like see for the next 20, 30 seconds except for this blotch of, of light right in front of you. Why? Why is that? Because human eyeballs can actually only comprehend so much light. And humans are only created to comprehend so much truth. There's, there's, a, there's a limit and there's a threshold. So light is necessary for the truth, and yet there is a certain amount that you absolutely cannot handle, and therefore it's also equally important that you have the right amount of light and the right filter for the light so that you can see beneficially. What does it mean when Jesus says he is the light of life, which means he's also the light of truth then? When he says he's the light of the world, what does it mean? How does that have anything to do with joy? Joy is totally essential for human wellness, uh, right? Light is essential for human wellness. Some of you, particularly during the winter months, you know this all too well because some of you have some really severe seasonal affective sensitivities and uh, everybody understands that the sunlight is like the primary source of vitamin D that human beings get and amongst other things, one of the things it does is it helps combat things like depression. Furthermore, have you ever noticed that little kids are never afraid, afraid of the daylight? They're only afraid of the night. They're only afraid of the darkness. Why is it that even little kids intuitively understand that this world is kind of a scary place and there's stuff out there bumping around in the dark that might come and get you? We seem to sense that light is necessary for joy because light helps us know what's out there. Light is, uh, helps us make us feel secure. Light helps keep the threats at bay. So therefore, light is essential to joy unless it reveals something terrible in your life. So, like, for instance, let's just, real quick, let's do a theology of makeup, okay? Theology of makeup. Ladies, maybe men, I don't know. It's, I'm not here to judge. But primarily ladies, I think. Uh, before you go anyplace important, before you came here tonight, perhaps, maybe you, maybe you applied a little bit of makeup. Why did you do that? What is the purpose of makeup? Um, interestingly, when you apply makeup, do you go into a room and turn the lights way down low? in order to put the makeup on? No. You turn, you, turn, you, get, you turn lights up and you get very close to the light. Some of you might even have one of those mirrors. I don't know what they're called, but they have like the exposed bulbs with the, it looks like old town Vegas, like just big bulbs that it's like a, a billion watts of light right in your face. And why do you do that? Why would you put yourself through that? Because the purpose of makeup is what? To cover up flaws. So what does light do? It exposes flaws. 
It doesn't produce flaws, but it reveals flaws that were there all along. And what does it mean? See, there's no real joy apart from light, but the journey of experiencing light reveals sometimes some painful and disgusting stuff along the way. What does it mean that Jesus is the light of the world? There is no joy apart from him, but if you get into his light, it might show some pretty disgusting stuff about yourself. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That is an intense metaphor, and it is infinitely deep. But before we pull out any more of that, I just want to work to some applications. Okay? Um, number one, the concept of willful darkness. Um, some of us, like here's the reality. Some of us are in the dark right now, or living in the dark right now. And what I mean by that is we're hiding some things right now. And we're hiding something perhaps from our spouse. Or maybe we're a couple who's maybe not married and we're hiding stuff from our friends or hiding stuff from our family. Maybe we're hiding something from our parents or maybe we're hiding something from our kids. Or maybe, you know, it's tax season. Maybe we're hiding something from the government. Or um, maybe we want to be perceived as a really good person and therefore what we do is we hide all our grudges and all our bitterness and all our resentment. And what that means we have to do is we have to essentially perform and act in life as though everything's okay when we know deep down inside it's not really okay. We're hiding stuff in the darkness. I just recently went through premarital counseling with about a dozen couples in the past couple of months. One of the things we always cover in premarital counseling is bank accounts, and not just bank accounts, but like transparency in bank accounts. So transparency in emails, transparency in text, transparency in social media, transparency in bank accounts. And you say, well, why bank accounts? God, does the Bible really say anything about how many bank accounts a couple should have? One, two, more? No. The Bible doesn't say anything about how many bank accounts you should have. The Bible does say a lot about oneness in marriage, and the Bible also says a lot about not hiding things from one another. And I can tell you as a fact that the vast majority almost all, almost all of the couples that I have counseled through an affair over the years, almost always one of them who was committing an affair had some other place where they were hiding all their stuff, hiding their money, hiding their information, hiding their whatever. Why? Because sin is always looking for a dark place to hide itself in and Satan is constantly looking for you to stash stuff in the dark. It's one of the reasons why... um, when people stay away from church, you know, like I'm a pastor at a church, we have somewhere around 900 members or so. When people stay away from church, you know, does, going to worship does not make you a Christian. Everybody understands that. The grace of God expressed through the love of Jesus Christ, made true in your heart through the faith worked by the Holy Spirit, that is what makes you a Christian. And yet, what do we do in worship? And what do we do in Bible study? And what do we do as a church? We open our Bibles. Well, what happens when you open a Bible? It shines a light. I cannot tell you how many different times I have talked to people over the years who were very intentionally, sometimes just subconsciously, but they were staying away from places where they knew that light was going to be shined because they knew some aspect of their life was totally inconsistent with God's will at that point. Um, it's much, they were terrified of light. It's much easier to stay spiritually asleep in the darkness, right? Uh, however, you know, the other side of this, it's interesting too, even when you're in the light and even when you're near the light, it is also possible to just close your eyes. 
And the perfect example of that is what we see in the Jewish leaders in our text. Very clearly, they are close to religious practices. Very clearly, they are close to the religious texts. They have Jesus literally standing right in front of them, but they did not see. These are literally, they're experts in the law, and they do not see the Messiah standing directly in front of them. How is that possible? It's possible because their hearts were hard and their eyes were closed and they were willfully entering into the darkness. See, uh, let me give you an example. Twenty years ago, there was a Harvard professor by the name of Daniel Simons uh, who conducted an experiment that was one of the best research, most important research on perception that we now have in history. And the experiment went like this. Basically, what he did is he had a bunch of subjects who would sit down and watch a video. And on the video, he had two teams, a team that was dressed in black and a team that was dressed in white. And each of them had three players, and each team had a ball. And throughout the course of this several-minute video, each team would pass the ball to another player again and again and again, okay? It went on for several minutes like this. And he would sit the subjects down in front of the video, and the, the thing that Dr. Simons would say to each of the subjects is, okay, watch this video and count for me how many times, you can watch this online, by the way, if you want, count for me how many times the, the white team uh, successfully executes a pass to themselves. So a white team passes it back and forth. They sit down, they watch the video for several minutes. After several minutes, he shuts it off and he asks them, okay, how many passes did the white team successfully execute? And most subjects uh, correctly respond 15 times. And then the next thing that Dr. Simon says to them is, okay, and did you see the gorilla in the video? And most of the subjects start to laugh. Say, what are you talking about? There was no, he turns the video back on, and sure enough, plain as day, there is, it's not a real video, a real gorilla. It's a, it's a man in a gorilla costume, and he walks through the test subjects again and again. He's waving at the video as prominent as the other players on the video. And you know what the conclusion, generally speaking, from a scientific standpoint was of that study? Every human is blind to what they're not paying attention to. It, we furthermore have additional information about physiologically why that is. Like there very, is very little of your retina that is what is called, like it's just high resolution. It's called the fovea centralis. It's the part where a ton of cones are packed together and it's the high-resolution portion of your eyeball. And uh, it, interestingly enough, if the entire eyeball, if the entire retina was high-resolution, the amount of information that would come in, your brain would need to be so large that your head would look like, a, like an alien and you would fall over because your body wouldn't be strong enough to lift up your own head. And therefore, very wisely, we're designed in such a way so that it's only a small part, the fovea centralis, is a small part of the retina that is high resolution. The rest of the retina is low resolution and on the peripheral. Okay, so that tells us a great deal about what in life we can actually see very clearly. What does your fovea concentrate on? Well, that's the interesting thing. It concentrates on what you choose for it to concentrate on. Um, this is actually one reason or one place where uh, the teaching of Hinduism would match up very closely with the teaching of Christianity because in the Hindu Vedas, there's this concept called maya. And the maya concept is the belief that humans are blinded by their desires. And Dr. Simon's research says it's more than just metaphorical. It's literally physiological. Here's the real important point when it comes to the nature of epistemology and Christians and why we believe and who believes what. Why does anybody, including you and me, 
disbelieve anything about Jesus Christ despite the overabundance of evidence that exists in front of our eyeballs. What that tells us is it's not as much a matter of what we can't see as it is a matter of what we're unwilling ourselves to look at. All right, let me, let me move on here. Disbelief is not a lack of evidence. Disbelief is a, is a matter of uh, inconvenience and a lack of being willing to look at the reality that's in front of us. Here's my second application point because I've got to move on. You right now are in the light, whether you like it or not. Um, and by the way, mo- many people are intimidated by this thought. It was one of the reasons I didn't really want to be a pastor at first because I didn't like the idea of having to live in a glass house and have a life, you know, people constantly evaluating. And what I came to realize is that, you know, it's not just a pastor thing. The moment you call yourself a Christian, if you've got the light of Christ inside of you, you've got the light of Christ on you and the rest of the world is watching. And it's necessary and it's natural, so just kind of embrace it. Because the rest of the world, what they're evaluating, they're not so much evaluating whether or not you're perfect because everybody, unless you really grossly define Christianity, everybody knows that's not really what the definition of Christianity is. What they're really checking when the watching world is looking at is they're trying to see if the light of Christ makes any substantial difference in your life. So, for instance, when you take criticisms, how do you respond? How do you treat the people who are underneath you? How do you act when somebody wants something from you that is terribly inconvenient? How do you interact with money in your life? What about how you process some of the major events of life? How do you process the death of a loved one? How do you process the rejection from a romantic partner? How do you process really bad Uh, health news? How do you process things like mistakes and failures when they come up in your life? Do you process all of it exactly the way the rest of the world does? Or does having the light of Christ in your life actually make a difference? Um, See, that's all they want to see. They just want to see, is the light of Christ, is Christ making any substantial difference in the way you're navigating through the darkness that naturally exists in this world? And if Christ's spirit is inside of you, then God absolutely wants them looking at you navigating the darkness. Which brings me to my final point. This should be the most obvious point, that Jesus himself is the light. You know, every world religion has a leader that says something along the lines of, I function like the moon. Now, they don't actually say that, but that's essentially what they're saying because they say, look, I reflect the truth. Just believe what I believe and do what I do and you can find truth and you can find life and you can find joy. Christianity is not like that. Christianity starts with a guy who says, I'm not a moon who reflects the truth. It starts with a guy who says, I'm the sun like the S-U-N and the S-O-N. I am the source of all light and the source of all truth and the source of all joy. That is very different. Jesus doesn't say, here's the pathway to God. Jesus says, I myself am God, the same untouchable and unapproachable God that existed with you Jewish people way back in the Old Testament. But I loved you enough as God. I loved you enough to humble myself all the way down into human flesh and I became touchable, and God became holdable. And Jesus, you know what he was? He was a filter. Jesus is a filter for us sinful creatures to meet God so that we won't be incinerated by his holiness. And the Son of God accomplished that by going to the cross and getting burnt up in our place. See, you know what's really interesting? The gospel records record that when Jesus comes into the world and when Jesus comes out of the world, something very fascinating happens with the light. When Jesus enters into the world, what is his birth characterized by? 
an incredible star in the sky by which people from far away are coming to visit him. And when Jesus exits from the world, you know what the gospel records tell us? From noon until 3 p.m., darkness sets over the earth. And you know what the very next words in the gospels are? Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's happening? Jesus allowed himself to be ripped from the arms of his father and endure something that amounted to something like 10 billion hells. And it's literally getting dark outside. Why? Because the light of the world is going out. And he's doing it. Why? Because of grace. So that you and I can have the light of life and walk in truth and experience a joy that this world cannot begin to touch. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, at the cross, you paid for every last one of our deeds of darkness so that we can live forever in the light of your glorious kingdom. Forgiven, healed, loved, and ignited, help us live collectively as your light in the world. Let your name be praised in this. Amen.